the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our guest today, I do want to throw out that Taylor and I have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Definitely consider throwing us a buck to help uh, support the show. We appreciate everyone who, who does. We have a very, very exciting episode that we're bringing to you today. We have both Todd McGowan and Ryan Angley of the Why Theory podcast joining us. We're going to do a little focus on, I guess, psychoanalysis and capitalism, broadly speaking, with Todd's book, Capitalism and Desire, being kind of the, the primary text that we'll look at. But, you know, we'll bring in some different things, some different perspectives, as we typically do. But I, I kind of feel like for this episode, when you were a kid, did any of you ever, you know, take a jar and open it up and throw in maybe some ants? and a spider, and a cricket, and a grasshopper. That's kind of kind of how I feel on my end today with, with this episode. So, <laughs> do, you, do you know that Mitch Hedberg joke? I don't Smacky, know. Smacky the frog? No, I don't know it that. Just, you get a frog, you put it in a jar, and a twig to, you know, simulate the environment that it's used to. And it's, that's what kids do, like, it's, there's no problem. So, I, so yeah, anyway. I just, I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, gosh, you know, he, he's he's been dead for so long, sadly, and I, I don't think I really watched much after he passed. So all of this is like distant uh, early kind yeah. of childhood memory of, of his standup. I, I couldn't tell a Mitch Hedberg joke off the top of my head, but I, like that vibe is still with me, you know. My he friends, and, my friends yeah. saw him live shortly before. I, I guess it would have been shortly before he, he died. And right. she they only had time to ask one question. And my friend asked him, how do you get your hair to look like that? <laughs> and and he just said, whatever they have at the hotel, I just put in there. That's what that's what he said. So Chad, yeah, anyway, Chad moment. <laughs> yeah. Does she regret that that was the, the last question or is there no, something cute no. about it? Yeah, no, no, that was her favorite. No, that's 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 a, la a lasting memory for sure. That's good. That's good. I have fond memories of Bill Hicks as well. He's another kind yeah. of comedian I put in that vein who died too early. I still regularly watch his stuff. So I don't have the same like psychic hang up, I guess. Well, we're the jar for you, Cooper. <laughs> yes. we're yeah, right. I know, right? We're all, we're all Smacky the Frog here. <laughs> exactly. Before we get started, and I, and I mentioned this you know, earlier, but I just want to, I want this to be on the record. I'm just so thankful to both of you. You've been extremely generous with your time and, and boosting the show and, and helping out and coming on and being super generous. So, you know, I just want to thank you both from the bottom, very sincere bottom of my heart for I mean, I, I don't think that the podcast would be where it is today. And like, I might not be doing this with Taylor, who's amazing in his own right, without both of your help. So I just want to no thank you both and Taylor, for yeah. that matter, for uh, for joining me, just, you know, some random guy on the Internet. So, well, I mean, if, if that's true, I also have to thank both of you. And I'm really right. happy yeah, to exactly. make your acquaintance, because if, if you're the reason, one of the reasons that uh, 
got me and Coop together, then I many, many thanks. Can't even put it into words. I mean, wham, wham, wazzle. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. It's pretty funny, too, because when Todd first came on the first time, we got to talking about how he was at, he left Texas State a year before I went there. And the teacher that replaced him was a very influential person that got me into Foucault and Derrida, but never psychoanalysis. And so of course not, right? that's an interesting little like missed, you know, yeah. missed chance or my whole intellectual trajectory could have been completely yeah. different. So if I'd have just stuck yeah. around. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it might be fun today to start out with at least three of us in this podcast today are at least moderate to super fans of Lacan. And I, I don't know where Taylor would place himself, but um, I'm, a, I'm definitely a student. I've been like <laughs> crash reading lots of Lacan lately. I'm doing research, reading the seminars, the Acree when he cites it, although that is a painful experience. <laughs> uh, I'm sure everyone, you know, has he's not a good writer. I, I, Todd and I are locked up on that one. He's doing something <laughs> performative. Right. If, if I'm being charitable, when I, when I like on a good day, I'm like, yeah, Lacan's wanting us to like work through. Mm-hmm. Um, but other times you, I agree with you. It's like, ah, it's like pulling teeth, you know, but uh, I would say I'm a, I'm a fan of Lacan. I mean, not, I feel like, again, I have so much to learn. There's, there's, and there's still seminars coming out and uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of material to cover, but, um, but I do appreciate his, his work, especially more so this year, having spent, you know, dozens and dozens of hours reading so yeah i i definitely feel that way and i know you still have that namesake your your twitter handle that's right do, do they know that your twitter no, no. handles <laughs> at I, Young I don't think I, either of either of them are on twitter or active on oh, twitter okay. at least so yeah no mine's the the thing with as i say this everywhere is mine <laughs> exists so that another guy with my name can't have at ryan angley and and it's the barrier to desire right (laughs) yeah well i mean but it's just so like i and he seemed like a nice person but he wanted to switch (laughs) oh my on twitter and i and that was the last time that i've ever tweeted and that was (laughs) i think in 2013 or or something like that and to me it just seems like i there's no way he thinks that I'm, i'm certain he doesn't think this but it it's so i guess so much more enjoyment in not tweeting yeah. And having the handle, then if I used it, because I'm sure, like every once in a while, this, this guy probably like, why do I have to have the underscore? <laughs> With the guy, the guy who doesn't use it, he just gets the name all like it's official, but I have to have the underscore and I'm the one that uses it. So I get a lot more enjoyment at Twitter and not using it. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's a very right wing form of enjoyment that you <laughs> <laughs> Oh, calling him out. That's fine. Et tu brute. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured, you know, if I had your name, I would, and, and, it, and it was taken, I would do one of those workarounds, like real, at real. Yeah, Angle, sure. Right? Like, or the right angle. You see these kind of ways of some of the check marks, how they work around not having that handle. I would rather be the symbolic Ryan Inglee, I think. There you go. <laughs> that was, well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll and see if that has to happen at some point in the future. Probably not. With that fandom for Lacan in mind, and I think at least for Taylor and I, our fandom of of Guattari is that in the anti-Oedipus papers and in some other places, there's some very compelling and interesting. I, I don't know. For me, I find the little, the sort of drama surrounding those two to be just absolutely, I'm just fascinated by it. Now, all these little notes and in the anti-Oedipus papers in particular, Guattari is just giving these, this insight to this sort of enigmatic figure of Lacan in quotes, you know. So what I did is I gathered a few 
pretty interesting. And some there's, I think I even have a kind of spicy, fiery polemic from Guattari, but I wanted to share those. And I thought that might be a good place for us to kind of get things rolling before we kind of, I think in terms of the actual meat of the conversation, I wanted to start out with death drive and Freud and beyond the pleasure principle kind of work there a little bit. But I thought that these kind of opening quotes would maybe move us in that direction and be fun. So this is from Guattari, and I believe this is from, I believe, Soft Subversion. So I'm just going to read this. I was a student at the Sorbonne. I was bored shitless in courses with Lagash, Sazo. I don't remember who. And then I went to Lacan's seminar. I have to say that it represented an entirely unforeseen richness and inventiveness in the university. That's what Lacan was. He was above all a guy with guts. You can say all you want about Lacan, but you can't say the contrary. He had no lack of guts. He possessed a depth of freedom that he inherited from a rather blessed period. I have to say, the period before the war, the period of surrealism, a period with a kind of gratuitous violence. One thinks of Gide's Lafcadio. He had a Dadaist humor, a violence at the same time, a cruelty. He was a very cruel guy, Lacan, very harsh. To me, this stuff is just absolutely fascinating and gives you just this totally different, I think, perspective on Lacan as, as a person. So I don't know if this, if you guys have been exposed to any of these quotes or have any exposure to the anti-Oedipus papers or anything like that, but I, I just thought this might be a fun way to kind of start the episode. Doesn't it show how unlikable he was? <laughs> I, well, yeah. Lacan, I find him, yeah. I, 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 I've, as you said, I'm, I'm indebted to him in many ways, but I find him so unlike Freud and who I think is incredibly very likable. I think right. Lacan is very unlikable. Mm -hmm. So I, and I think this just, the fact that Guattari was fascinated by his cruelty, that just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't find cruelty fascinating. <laughs> and I think, I think he was perverse. I think what, right. what, uh, you know, when, when Taylor was talking about the writing, like, I think that the fact that the writing is, basically unreadable is just a sign of this perverse acting out. And I, I think that this, to me, this statement from the Oedipus papers is just another, another sign of that. I, I think that that, I, I have to say, I don't find anything charming about this. Statement. <laughs> you and I have talked about this before. I don't know if it's, if it's made it on the show, but just personally, I think, I th think it's because he was, if you really believe in, if you just at, the, at a base level, at a fundamental level, if you really believe in what psychoanalysis has to say, which is that that which is most you is that which would just escape you. You'd have no purchase or control over it. In, 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 in Lacan's term, it would be extimate to you. If you really, really believe that, then you almost you're invited by Lacan's perversion to see that it's because he was an asshole, because <laughs> he was perverse. That's that's why the, the theory exists in a way that's bigger than him, it's not reducible to him as a person, which is good because he was, I don't know, friends with Francisco Franco and kind of sucked a lot of the time. So it's good that it's not reducible to him as a person. But I, and, and I don't know, I could maybe see, you can see the, maybe that tension in what Guattari is saying. The guy with guts, he had no lack of guts, also fantastically cruel, but, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I like what you're saying there, Ryan, but mm. don't you think even like guts seems like the wrong word? Because think about like at the time, I would say Jean-Paul Sartre, there's a guy with gut. He like marched with the students. He did. He didn't go in and like condemn the students. It's like true. Like right. Lacan did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so yeah, I enough. feel like that's probably what he thought was gutsy, though, I, I, I yeah, think I guess. for, for I Guattari. Guess. I, I think which I, you and I, you and I both agree that that like Lacan was. 
he was even though he so he famously says right like you want a master and you're going to get one he ends up being right but that's it's not a revolutionary position that he takes right. up see my read on this quote was more so not that that watari was particularly interested in his cruelty just that i think he was interested in what lacan was doing theoretically was more so i mean that's why i like lacan as well as just the theoretical i mean i like stru structural linguistics that stuff is is fun for me i enjoy that i enjoy that kind of perspective and like playing with those so i can kind of i think that's more so what he was going for and then just kind of giving some insight into lacan's own sort of whatever circumstances he had sort of a unique circumstance in terms of growing up in that kind of data period and i think he always i mean he always had that there's another quote i mean he you know like he says here he's got that data humor and i think absolutely that comes through in in his love of puns and, and the like so yeah but isn't that <laughs> i'm sorry to be i, I hate <laughs> oh no go ahead i hate people that are contrarian and now i'm gonna do it so <laughs> but isn't that really the worst part of him all the puns all the ridiculous invented words all that stuff we could really do without that and i yeah. so i don't what he doesn't say is there was this period before the war hey where he was a really close friend and student of alexander koshev and that's why he was able to have the insights that he does so i <laughs> also from Sartre as well. So I, I don't know, like, like it's, and he's an incredible reader of Freud. Once you, yeah, this is one thing I would say, once you read Lacan's reading of Freud, it's very hard not to see that in, and to think, oh, Freud really was saying that, which is, I think, really a tribute to him mm. as a reader, just as purely as a reader. So I guess for me, like the kind of misses, again, I'm sorry to say this because I, oh, I, I really hate contrarians. <laughs> I think it like the Dadaist humor. I just don't think that's what it was really that gets right. to his great the theoretical insights that he had. I don't think you're being contrarian. This is absolutely consistent. The the the, the Lacan that you don't like. I mean, we're like we say this on the, the show. The Lacan that 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 we, that we don't like is the one that finds new and new ways to install himself as master. And some of the ways that that is expressed is through just being it being perverse deliberately beguiling this like wordplay that one of my favorite it's a little bit like what one of my favorite television cliches is characters in the show that where there's some sort of central mystery they find something and they're like what is it and someone says could be nothing could be everything and it's like and i and i lacan does that a little bit too much but, yeah <laughs> well and it's interesting because it's a total contrast with slavoy right slavoy never has told a pun zero invented words right, right. so i feel like that's an interesting Tells a lot of jokes. He tells a lot of jokes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 jo the joke structure that expresses something, I think. For right. Slavoy. But, but uh, also, I mean, Lacan doesn't joke. I don't know a single Freud jokes. I don't know a yeah. single joke. That <laughs> so it's funny, this, this uh, Dada sense of humor doesn't manifest itself in him telling any jokes. <laughs> it, I find it, really funny. I read it kind of the way in which like the clown or the fool or the or the the joker figure or or the rogue even kind of uh yeah i think is, the rogue is able to work uh in in like narrative forms and ways of making the private erupt in the public and sort of shifting the the czar and the king and and sort of tumbling it so so lacan does does both right he does take on that master's discourse but many times it's to subvert it and whether or not he succeeds and, and it's true, his writing is way more convoluted and way more um, painful, as I said, psychically. But his seminars, you know, um, there are times when he does approach, again, that esotericism, especially towards the, the later years. But 
But as you said, as a reader of Freud, I mean, I think that you're right. And there's, that's something that's left out here. Watery did really admire Lacan for staying true to a certain reading of Freud that did buck the established notions of the time, right? With objects, relations with the Anna Freud's ego um, psychology and, and this kind of thing. So without, you know, without that, Todd, without what you were talking about, without his sort of showing himself as an exemplary reader of Freud transformatively, I don't think that you can, I don't think that the humor would make up for it, that, that Guattari sees. Uh, right, you, you right. I, I really like, I like what you're saying there because it's an interesting, it's it's so different than most thinkers like that the the written work is the esoteric work <laughs> and the seminars are actually the exoteric, right? Like even though he meant it the opposite, right? He meant the seminars as for a little group. Yes. They're actually what's exoteric, what's available to, to, the, to the wider public, which is why I don't know if you know this. It, it just got translated, this book by Jacqueline Miller. It's called, it got translated as a search for clarity, but it's called a L'Oeuvre Claire de Lacan. And What's interesting about it is that he says you can understand Lacan solely from the writing. Hmm. I think I want to say, no, you can understand it only if you throw all the writing out and only come <laughs> to it just kind of in the way you said, Taylor, just to confirm certain ideas right. ever. But I think the seminars are pretty clear, actually. They're pretty yeah. kind of make your way through them. Right. Yeah, we we did a full episode on seminar three, and uh, I didn't find it. It was, I guess, the first seminar I'd read fully and I didn't have too much trouble with it. The earlier seminars do feel a little bit easier, but you know, um, Todd, one that you use that's so important and that was the first translated, right? Seminar 11, that's that's a fairly clear one too, even it though is. that's kind of middle of his, you know, I mean, like the later ones are difficult because you do see a lot of the not work going on. You also see the work in um, Encore. I mean, I do feel like that's a difficult one and he he seems to play around a little bit more, kind of like in his writing, um, than some of the earlier seminars. But I, you know, I, one thing I had never thought of is that Zizek never, never puns. I, my gut trusts you. I, something I, <laughs> I would have to confirm and wonder about. Not even no, one. Never. Not not one never. pun. Never. Oh man. Never. No. That's, no. Uh, not even not even the the familiar right? Like Freud. Like <laughs> Freud loves that. I mean, he yeah. might have referenced that, but he's talking yeah. about someone else, right? Mm-hmm. He's not making right. It. Yes. Right. I, I am known as a prolific punner on, on Twitter, <laughs> just to throw that in, neither here nor there. This next quote, so this is, a, this is going to be from Guattari's journal from August 24th of 71, and I'm reminded a little bit, uh, I think you, you both brought this up on Y Theory when you did the three episodes on Deleuze and Guattari about sort of this Oedipal thing between this kind of the irony of mm-hmm. anti-Oedipus and this sort of Oedipal relationship to Lacan. So I want to read this little excerpt from... Guattari's journal. Another dream about Lacan. This is insane. I can hear them from here saying badly eliminated transfer, etc. In a sense, it's true. If transfer is Oedipal re-territorialization artificially woven onto the space of the couch, I have Oedipal rot sticking to my skin, not passively, but with all the will to power of the death drive. The more I become disengaged, the more I try to become disengaged. From 20 years of Lacano Labordian comfort, the more this familiar carcass enfolds me secretly. I would rather admit anything else. I am sad that they translated the French wrong in terms of transference. You're right. <laughs> it's just a mistake. It's just it's a just mistake. A, you're right. It's just a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's it. Because the, the word means both things. So right. The word, in trans, the word is just transfer. Yeah. French, you're exactly right, Taylor, that they just, tra- because it should be translated as transference. 
I think this is a this is a really interesting one. And I think that's I think it is I think it is right to say that I mean it's interesting because this is a point where I think Guattari stays close to what Lacan thinks about tra- that transference is something that has to be, you have to overcome it in a certain uh-huh. way. And I think that that, I mean, I think Lacan thinks it's more necessary than, than Guattari would think. And I don't know that he would re- equate it with re-territorialization. I mean, I know he wouldn't, but I think you're, I think the, the same kind of trajectory is still present there. I mean, I think that's, that's maybe what's interesting to me about the project of Deleuze and Guattari is that in a way it's the same trajectory as that of Lacan and psychoanalysis, right. but the terms and the structure within the trajectory is, is I think, fundamentally different. It's interesting that we see in soft subversions and in these journal entries and in some of the, the other writings of the anti-IS papers that some of the polemic for Lacan is not, doesn't make its way into the, the full work of anti-Oedipus. I mean, there are points theoretically where they seem to diverge but it's not as it always it feels like a little like blaming the students to save the father, to save Lacan. Like so blaming Leclerc, blaming Manoni, blaming some of these other quote unquote Lacanians, if they would even call themselves that, and trying to save at least Lacan somewhat, like he's being either misinterpreted or or misused. Um, the, even Freud, that, I think, right? Even Freud mm-hmm. gets kind of a pass in that book. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think it's, I mean, part of it is the way in which both Freud and Lacan were so important for Deleuze in difference and repetition, right? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. it would be, I think he thinks it would be schizophrenic in a bad way to be, to like totally turn on them only like to what, like five, four years, five years later. So maybe right. not even. So I think that's part of it. But I think you're right that there's a real kind of protecting of those paternal figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think we said this on, on that episode is like, is very interested in going at actual analysts, you know, named Taylor, <laughs> as you just said, naming the abusers of the theory, basically, the people who, I think I called it the people who make who who make psychoanalysis out to be like a fascism of the unconscious or something like that. That's the target. And I just keep thinking, five minutes ago, you described, and I, I think this makes sense, that like you uh, you described Guattari as as thinking Lacan as, as, as roguish. And I think that's really nice because I think Lacan wants to think that he's Han Solo, but he's probably Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that's, uh, that is, uh, uh, and I think that's what makes him interesting yes. or mm-hmm. what makes the thought interesting. So that, that yeah. Yeah, I, I at least he's not agree. the emperor. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or Grand Moff Tarkin. I mean, yeah. I, I thought that's who you were going to say. No, but I, moments <laughs> of triumph. All right, the chances. Oh man, I think it's in it. When I wonder what you two would say about this. That I think that the real, the real crux of the point of rupture for them, for Guattari and for Deleuze too, is is that of representation, right? So yeah. I think that, you know, for psychoanalysis, representation is is necessary. Yes. And I mean, it's not necessarily the end point because Lacan's concerned with what escapes representation, but it's nonetheless necessary to have, you have to have representation to have what escapes it. But I think, I think for both Deleuze and Guattari, the very representation itself is the problem because it's, it's so like you're, it's enmeshed with negation. And I think, you know, the, 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 the allergy that both of them have to negation. I mean, I think that's what brought them together, that 
they're in this French space where negation, because of Sartre especially, but also mm-hmm. because of Lacan, it's so privileged. And then they're gonna they're turning this other they're gonna turn this other way. So I feel I don't know. I, I to me that's really the everything else is I think secondary to the, the way that representation figures for Lacan and then doesn't figure for them or figures only negatively, even though they're not negative, it figures only negatively for them. I, I think you're totally right. You know, you could see it. You can either talk about it in terms of Deleuze trying to, what is it, 68, 69, he writes the What is Structuralism essay that sometimes gets forgotten, but that Lacan, you know, features prominently. And so it is this question of whether it's the beginnings of post-structuralism, whatever you want to say. But yeah, this this railing against representation or the ways of theorizing it specifically with whether it be the image of thought or whether it be really it's i see it as this question of yeah i mean you put it as a negation and they want to make it all positive on the body without organs etc it's it's hard to see though you know someone like guattari who does stay close to freud you know this working through even like an essay, the, Freud's essay, Light Negation, which does come up to that, that period we were talking about earlier with uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. It is a sticky issue because it seems, I'm not sure where where um, Guattari would necessarily fit in with Deleuze on that issue off the top of my head, because it does seem like Deleuze's pet project, right? You brought up difference of repetition. So Guattari needing that too is, a, is food for thought and something to, that I, I would love to take further time later to discuss it or, or to think about it. Because I honestly don't, don't know. I think there's, I think um, logic of sense is, I mean, I'm, I'm going to always bring it back to seriality because I think it's, it's, un, it's under, it's been underworked. To me, the, 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 a really big point for Deleuze where he starts to, I think at like where the, the future kernel will develop is he takes as opposed to Derrida, he takes what Lacan says about the, the series very seriously. And he takes what Lacan works through in the Proline Letter seminar, like he takes it as read, that signification emerges from chance. You may think there is chance, but there's actually order in it. I think he, he completely takes that seriously. And I think he's a little scandalized by it. And he's, we have to think of a way out. We need to, there needs to be a way out. And that's what leads him to you know discuss like the phantasm and he wants to inter, in, uh, interject novelty into something that would otherwise be seen as a ceaseless repetition of the same. And it's, I think it's in that sense where you get the idea that the symbolic is a trap that becomes very operative for Deleuze. I think it becomes really operative for him and Guattari when they get together and they work on that problem. And I think it's, and for Lacan, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't function that way. And, and it's, it's, as Todd was saying, part of it is the, is, is how you work through and think about negation and what do you do with the limit? And so for in Lacan, the idea of the limit, that is what is uh, of necessity, the thing that would exceed it. Whereas Deleuze, Deleuze sees the limit that Lacan lays out and there's got to be another way. So there's a way to abscond to some non-space. This ends up being like a whole thread. Taylor, I know that you, you've translated uh, La Ruelle. That's like his whole thing. Mm-hmm. Alexander Galloway, like that's like who, in sort of my field, broadly speaking, are really interested in these things. And it's there's a deadlock in the symbolic. And I think that's what brings a lot of these people together. And what do you do with that deadlock? How do you understand that? And that, and then that's, that ends up being the, the, little, the little split away. Well, don't you think too that Part of part of the relation between Deleuze and Lacan is that Lacan wanted 
Deleuze to be Jacqueline Miller before <laughs> Jacqueline, <laughs> Jacqueline Miller. And I think that was, I think that that rubbed, it would have rubbed me the wrong way. I think that you rubbed mean, Deleuze the wrong You mean way. Guattari, right? Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I know. I mean, Deleuze. Oh, like okay. He thought he wanted Deleuze to be his philosopher. Like, okay, his, I like see. Gotcha. The person that, I mean, it's interesting that he didn't live to see Slavoj because I think Slavoj really is the person who turned Lacan into a philosophy. And I don't think he would have liked it, but uh, <laughs> no, just because it's way too Hegelian for him, he would, oh. have, he would have seen that as a real betrayal. But I think that there was something kind of personal almost between, I mean, certainly Guattari is talking here in what Cooper read about the transferential relation, but there's also for Deleuze this you know, I think this recoil from, I'm not just going to be somebody's spokesperson, you know, like right. I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn my life into being your court philosopher. It's right. interesting. I don't know if you, if, if you, you know, and for anyone who's read seminar 11, so Jacqueline Miller was 19 years old and he's, he's in that seminar asking mm-hmm. this amazing. It's amazing. Really how far he's fallen from that is, is sad, <laughs> I think, but um, shots fired. Yeah, I know. I, I know. The shot's so below the target. He won't <laughs> fired. But but I think it's what's interesting to that is like it's hard. I can't imagine, and I find, I think it'd be hard for most people to imagine dedicating your life to someone else's mm. thought in that way. So I think Deleuze recoiled from that, but Malaire did it. Like he was fine with that. And he it's clear he enjoys Taylor was talking about the the in a certain sense, the slow pace with which the seminars are released. Yeah. I think that's Malaire's enjoyment, right? Yes. Like he gets mm-hmm. to hold, he's holding back by not letting, he has, somebody told me, it must have been over 12 years ago, something. He, he wrote this person email saying, I finished all the seminars. They're all edited. Uh, and like one has come out since then. So it's wow. <laughs> really, to me, that's interesting in the dynamic of Deleuze and Lacan, that Deleuze just wouldn't, allow himself to be put in that position. And I, I think rightly, like, I think that's not a good position to be. And I think it, it had a deleterious effect on Molaire. He married into the family, right? Well, and, that's right. You know, that's a whole other thing. So, and it's interesting to think about the, the previous quote from Guattari about the cruelty, because didn't Molaire's uh, kind of controversial essay, what was released in, at the end of May, doesn't he basically confirm this, that Lacan was was an asshole. Brutal to him, right? right. Like, brutal to him. Son-in-law. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a weird transferential relation yeah. that yeah. he yeah. sought out, you know, or, you know, it's it's also this weird thing where you can be uh, harshest to the ones you love because right. they know that they'll forgive you, something right. like that, right? I, I, but I, I'm not, who knows about Lacan and, and love, right? Besides some, <laughs> of the, some of the other biographical niceties we know about Bataille and stuff like that. Right. I think that it's interesting about Miller's pace. You're totally right that, and it goes back to what you say in your book about this, you know, this, what was it? Boundaries without barriers or am I mis- am I saying it in the opposite way? Uh, I think it's barriers, barriers without boundaries, but I, yes. think yeah. right. But like a, well, the, the, the sort of the, that dialectic of the, of the constitutive failure and, and yeah. him finding this weird enjoyment in that and keeping us with bated breath or like keeping us on the edge of our seats and, and wanting right. more. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's why people pay attention to that crazy essay that he wrote on, mm-hmm. on trans, right? If he wasn't the publisher of Lacan's oeuvre, like no one yeah. would care. 
No one yeah. would care. You're right. Sure. And so I wrote to a friend of mine in France after that statement came out. And he, he I said, what about the statement by Milner? And he goes, he writes me back. He goes, he's like, Milner said something on, on transit. I'm like, no, Miller. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote me back. He's like, uh, je m'en fous. Like, I, yeah. you, like no one cares. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like it, it didn't even, it's funny. It made more of an impact in America yes. than it did in France because People just know he's going to say just things that are crazy. So. Interesting. Just to go back to, we did an episode. I mean, well, Taylor translated Machinic Unconscious from Guattari as well. So we did a series on on that. And in one aspect, it's whenever there's a chapter or two, I guess the last half of the book, rather, Guattari focuses on on Proust. And so as part of that, we read Proust and Signs from Deleuze as a supplemental reading and it was not only was the, I mean, I thought it was amazing writing. I mean, just an amazing, uh, some beautiful writing from Deleuze. But within that, I mean, he sounded very Lacanian or at least, mm-hmm. at least was very influenced by structural linguistics at that point. And I made that comment during that episode. So I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. Not only that that is present within Deleuze in that period, but also just that I think Proust and Signs is just an, an amazingly written work that I absolutely loved reading. So Cooper, I agree with you. Do you think that, I think that changes though, don't you? Like that changes over the course of his, his. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, yeah. Proust and Signs, I believe was published what Taylor, you would probably know best. I know the revised date is 72 and they, he adds some stuff that is very inspired by his conversations with Watery. And I think that that's, I don't remember the original publication date. It was sometime. It was like 65. I want to, I want to say it was as early as 65. So this is pre Deleuze. I mean, pre Guattari. Yeah. So he revises and he updates it and adds a little section at the end in 72, which uses some language that we find in anti-Oedipus and, uh, and the papers, you know, I was, I was still thinking, reflecting on the negation thing. I think the one place I would go would be Guattari's essay machine and structure which I think is both influenced by Deleuze and influences him. It's, it's before their, their meeting, but it, it has, uh, this goes to Ryan's point about seriality. It has a lot of that language that vibes well with uh, logic of sense and the, and the work uh, on that. And, and so if Guattari is locating negation in the field of structure and, and, and entering this kind of, whether we call it dialectic or not, this relation between machine and structure, uh, that's where I would go. I know that's that's just a dead end. I just wanted to come back so we can uh, we can. Definitely... Why do you think that's a dead end, Taylor? Oh, I meant I meant that I, that was almost like a footnote to a, to our previous oh, no, but, talk. But, but don't you think that that it's interesting? I mean, that seems to me an also an, an interesting point of convergence or divergence, right? The what the relationship is to the machine, what the relationship is between the machine and the subject, and then what mm-hmm. the relationship of all that to the structure is, right? I think that for Deleuze and Guattari, the machine is is not part of the structure, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a it's mm-hmm. a which is interesting. I mean, I I and I find that that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I think that's <laughs> that's important for them that it yes. that it's not. And I also think you know this the notion that the machine is not a subject is like the, the and it's in, I mean that's strange to me because I think Descartes mm-hmm. may be the inventor of subjective modern subjectivity, right? Like he he thought of the body as machinic. Yes. And so he very much like you know he has this famous thing where he says and because animals he thought 
or not he didn't care about animals right <laughs> when you hear an animal crying out in pain it's like a, the gears of a clock not working that's how you should think of it so which will you know upset charles barkley said that <laughs> oh, no, I'm <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> descartes was quoting barkley I guess. yeah um, so so i think that i think that though that you know the notion of the machine i don't think is antithetical to the notion of subject. That's what I'm getting at. Like right. I think for a whole philosophical tradition, Descartes, Kant, and Hegel even, like I, I think that they would say, sure, machine subject. And I think it's even filmically interestingly confirmed. And this is a, one of Deleuze's favorite examples. It's it's, it's Keaton, Buster Keaton, right? Like mm, all mm -hmm. these films are about the way machines are yes. actually subjects. Mm -hmm. This next quote that I pulled, this kind of actually, this goes to Ryan's Star Wars metaphor pretty well, I think. Nice. And, and I think it's a pretty fun one. But it was too late. Something is broken. Maybe there was always something broken between the two of us. But also, has he ever opened up to the other? Has he ever talked to anyone? I wonder. He sets himself up as a despotic signifier. Hasn't he condemned himself to this kind of solitude forever? And that's regarding Lacan directly which I think goes to that, that idea of Lacan as Darth Vader and that, mm -hmm. and that solitude. Great statement. <laughs> Excellent. Great yeah, statement. that's fantastic. I think it's a great statement. And I think it's why Seminar 17, I'm just going to say it right now, it's bullshit, right? <laughs> like it's just bullshit. And it, this is his attempt to, this, this just shows, I think, that Lacan, he wants to be a master who never takes up who refuses to accept that he's in a position of mastery and thus oh, yeah. invents this thing called analytic discourse, which, okay, whatever, I don't know, maybe it exists in the analytic situation. I don't care, but it certainly doesn't exist outside of it. It certainly mm -hmm. doesn't exist when he's giving a seminar, right? That's a, and it certainly doesn't exist in an organization that he creates. So there's this whole structure that's institutional. That's one that involves mastery. So it's interesting that 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 you know he he in nineteen right before he died nineteen eighty he disbanded his own Nicole Freudian and right. and, and Louis Althusser famously said you're look you're not allowed to just disband him. <laughs> 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 you're not just but he was he was the master right. so so it's like uh, I think this is perfect he wants to I mean I hope it's clear how much I despise him really personally and yet I still <laughs> find him really theoretically of course compelling. Yeah. So I think that, that I think this this to me this is exactly right. He wants mastery, but he doesn't want to avow that he's in the position of ma of the master. Which to me is that's why I said he's perverse because I think that's one of the thing, one of the ways perversion functions. Seminar seventeen is where he has the, the diagrams of the four discourses. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Is that one out? Because I think yes, I want to say this. It must be 16 that Fink is. 16 is, not 16, 16 yeah. is a brilliant seminar, and it's only in French right now. Fink is, is Fink is translating it right now. Yeah, oh, I don't know what's going to, supposed to come out, but la I it's been about a year or more that he said he was working on it last time we corresponded. So yeah, it's 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 really so what he invents in seminar 16 is so it's from the other the big other to another little other. And what he invents there, basically, he, that's where he says, and this is something that Slavoj talks about, so it gets a lot of currency, it has a lot of currency today, the, the notion of surplus jouissance as, what, as what's actually more fundamental than surplus value, like surplus Ooh. jouissance oh, is yeah. what was at stake. So, And there's also this great 
discussion of Pascal's wager and the role of objet a, that his idea is that what Pascal is really wagering is the objet a. So it's really, because <laughs> what Pascal says is like, I give up the finite life and all the pleasures, that, but that's all nothing. And Lacan's right. like, oh yeah, but it's the nothing of, of the objet a, so. That's good. Kub, I think you, uh, you have, uh, is it, I believe the Irish school that, that may have translated a, at least a bootleg yeah, online? Yeah, there is a bootleg yeah, the, 16 out. Someone so me. I'm just giving a shout out to, to the bootleg translators of the world. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's, uh, it's unsung, necessary. Unsung with, heroes, right? <laughs> with, with the pace at which uh, Lacan's mm-hmm. work comes out, sometimes going rogue, right? Is, uh, is Car- Karnak is the name of the, uh, that, right? Or Karnak and, publishes them, yeah. but it's, uh, them. Cormac Gall- Gallagher? Yeah, the guy yeah. is Cormac Gallagher. What's mm-hmm. really interesting is he's a very nice guy. He's an apostate, though. So in Ireland, he was like one of the main, like, and they had a huge split because he 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 just broke from the mm. from the ranks. So I, I I know I know a lot of people there, and they and I'm like, could you put me in touch with with uh, Cormac? <laughs> They're all like, yeah, no, no, we can't actually. That's <laughs> funny. funny. So, so he went rogue in more than one sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's but, the real but, Han Solo. Yeah. <laughs> I would say those translations are pretty, they're very literal, but I'm going to teach one in the fall. So I, a seminar 13. So I think that they're do, usable. Sometimes you have to err on the side of literality. Um, it's not bad, right? Yeah. Right. Todd, you mentioned surplus jouissance and, you know, a book that we have covered in great detail on the podcast. We did a whole seven or eight part episode, series of episodes on Leotard's libidinal economy. And I was curious, I, I noticed you didn't, there's not one reference to Leotar and capitalism desire that I saw. And I was just kind of curious for both of you, if you've read the text and if you had any general thoughts that you'd be willing to share, primarily because I've, I say jokingly at least that I think that the book is one of the best works of fiction of the 20th century in terms of <laughs> literature. Nice. <laughs> and I, that's kind of riffing on a quote from Guattari about uh, what was it? The interpretation of dreams being a, yes. a fine work of literature as yes. well. Yeah, no, I haven't read it, so I, I you have not read it. Oh, yeah. Okay, have you no, been? Ex- same, have you same for oh, me? Wow. Same for me. Same for me. Yeah, no, that's a that, that would be that would be a gap. Honestly, it's a Coop's right to say it's a it's a fascinating work of fiction, um, <laughs> and and his writing style and that. But oh, he wow. calls he disavows it, calls it the evil book, and it is a kind of a frustrating book to read. But your point about surplus jouissance, which I would. I would love for you to to expand on if you, if you if you want to would would fit nicely into uh, in, into into some of what what Leotard is is working through in that in that work. In seminar sixteen, he basically so that's the first time he mentions it. Plus de jouir, surplus jouissance, and his idea is that what's given up by the worker is mm-hmm. precisely this excess of surplus jouissance, and that's. And he doesn't really work this out, which is is what makes it frustrating. And, and which make what makes me think that seminar seventeen, he turns to the discourses as a way of not working out mm. the idea that he that he develops. And the really seminar sixteen sets up is a critique of, of a psychoanalytic critique of capitalism. And right. then that doesn't then you know famously the discourse seminar it's l'envers de la psychanalyse. The how is it? What's the English? The the other side. Other side. Oh, side. Other side. Right. So that that seminar famously doesn't have a capitalist discourse. Like he adds that he gives a, he's given a talk. I think it's in Rome. He adds a, this fifth discourse, but that's some people accept it. Some people don't, it's, it's, it has this kind of apocryphal. I mean, it's real, but it has this apocryphal status. 
and so I think it's a kind of retreat from this notion that w- what's at stake in the in the capitalist exchange is precisely this not surplus value, but surplus value depends upon surplus the surplus enjoyment that the worker has been compelled to sacrifice and that the consumer's trying to purchase but never can. Right? right. That's the whole point. Like so it's good. the promise of this surplus that you're trying to get, but you can never get it. And so I think uh-huh. <laughs> to me that would have been a, a fascinating path for a psychoanalytic critique of capitalism that then Lacan just leaves undone. And you do a, I mean, I think you do a great job filling in some of those gaps or <laughs> filling in the dots with, with the, the first few chapters of Capitalism Desire. You, you do work through some of the implications that gap or that lack, that constitutive lack in Lacan's right. Uh, writing. Right. Well, that thank you. That's nice. But I, I, I do think that, that I do it in a, just to say that, I mean, like, I'm just a simple, very simple <laughs> thinker. I think I do it in a very basic way. And I think Lacan would have done it in a much more complex way. You know, like, I think it would have just been, there would have maybe been more there. I don't know. There have been, there have been more you know, puns for sure. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I don't know, whatever, but I, I think that he, it would have, it's just too bad, I think. And, and I think it, again, it just, it's the limit of his radicality. He mm. just is not a He's not really an anti, you know, this famous beginning of seminar, not the beginning, it's one of the, it's a session toward the beginning where he distinguishes between the knave and the, and the fool. We were talking about the fool and the rogue, right? right? And, and I think he's much more, and rogue fits us, he's much more the knave than he is the fool. And he, he says that the left wing intellectual is the fool and the right wing Mm. intellectual is the knave. And then he says, well, if you see the journals I have laying around my office, you'll know which side I'm on. And and someone jokes, oh, there are right wing journals. So, uh, Uh, yeah. So I don't think he's (laughs) capable of it. Oh, that's great. I guess we can move on to the, this next one. This is one of my favorite. I had this actually as the banner on my, on my Twitter account for a while. What's interesting in Lacan is that he is crazier than most people, and that, in spite of his efforts to normalize everything, he manages to slip and slip back into deterritorializing the sign. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that what Guattari is referencing specifically is Abjaya here. But I just thought this funny, this notion that Lacan is crazier than most people and... <laughs> Well, I mean that that just that just goes as sort of his mad with, scientist kind of with what with what we're talking about this yeah. the fool and the and the knave and um, it sounds like something that Zizek would joke about you know because I I can think of all of his jokes about the you know the liberal father versus the authoritarian father so I, I suppose I mean Todd you might if you could say a little bit more would would the knave have like a presumption of knowing you know, better, but, but still parades a kind of ignorance or is it? The Ava's okay. notion open about her, his criminality, I think. I like, gotcha. Okay. That's the difference. But I'm curious what Ryan thinks about this. Cause I, I find a couple of things. I'm not sure why sign. Yeah. That, that's my, that's my, my, my hit, my hang up. It's exa- yeah. exactly it. Todd. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I, cause it should be for Lacan. It should be, it should be signifier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not could be a translation thing. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Probably, probably not. I don't, think, <laughs> you don't so. think so. No, no, no. no. That would be a terrible mystery. <laughs> okay. Todd, when did we do sign and signifier? That was like, that was years Long ago. Long time now. ago. A couple Long years time ago. ago. So you're wearing a, you're wearing a, are you wearing a Bengals hat right now? I am wearing a Bengals hat. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, backwards. Right, right. You're trying to be young, right? That's I know, a, which I, yeah, I think someone, someone, I, can I just tell this? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Someone, <laughs> someone typed into a YouTube video that I did saying, why do you have your baseball cap on backwards? Are you trying to <laughs> appear like you're young? And I said, well, it's it's totally failed. 
So. Yeah. Oh, oh, Todd, there's there's a hilarious picture. Um, there's a, it's like you were at this conference on libidinal economics, I think, or de, de, uh, capitalism and desire. And the way that the YouTube <laughs> thumbnail, it's like you, you're like you're like you're looking like this. You have this great look of like utter like ah. Uh, it's such a great. I'm gonna have to find it and email it to you. I it's, would like that, but it's I thought fantastic. You were talking. So in 2008, I went to this thing in in Croatia, and it was called it was like a pleasure conference or something. Okay. And part of the thing was, it was like a, about like in having more, as much pleasure as you can have. There were no like chairs. So you had, everyone had to lie on beanbags and okay. they had to give their talks on beanbags. And so I refused, I said, I'm not giving my talk on a beanbag. <laughs> so I, I sat on my knees and I, I like could barely walk the whole day. So it was really a very unpleasurable thing, but that's not what you're talking about. But Ryan, well, I, just, th- just there get, it is. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that look good. right there. That's great, right? Yeah. Someone what, must have asked me about you know, <laughs> about Derrida and Guattari. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Um, I've seen that look in class. The um, the, <laughs> I've been years ago. Actually, that that I forget what someone. You know what? I'm not going to blow up your spot on this. I'm going to I'm going to undo the story that I was about to that I was about to tell you. So what I was saying about Todd's hat was is that so he has it backwards and so it's functioning right now as signifier. If he had it the other way around, you have the Bengals logo. Then there's sign. And uh, that, that that was just something we went into years ago on the, the pocket, just to give like a really really quick gotcha. split for anybody listening. So it's hard for for me. I don't I don't know I don't know what Guattari's uh, getting out of what he's thinking through. Lacan is doing in, gotcha. in, in that in that kind of language. That, that's me. Gotcha. I know Todd. If that if that's what you were you were thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was getting to. Right? Yeah. Why? Like I don't think Lacan necessarily cares about the sign. Mm-hmm. So yeah, here's I guess the question: like, is trying to Lacan is trying to to expose the torsion of signification, right? Like mm-hmm. the way in which signifying tor- turns on itself and undermines itself. Is that what is that deterritorializing it? I think that sounds right. You know, so maybe it is. So maybe there's a that way that that does kind of coincide. You know, at this point, Guattari had been had left Lacan's tutelage for at least two years, and he's he's immersed in all of this, especially uh, like. Uh, someone like Purse, you know, he's, he's, he's immersed in all these other linguists. And so the, the fact that he just says sign as a stand in for, for what Lacan is doing, I, you know, I don't necessarily think that that's a, a, that's probably more of a quirk on his part than, than anything to do with Lacanian terminology. Right. Yeah, it's, it guess. seems like it's his reading that, that that's, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. But, but isn't it important though? Like the, so the, for Lacan, this, the signifier represents the subject for another signifier, right? The sign, sorry, this is basic. The sign represents the subject for another subject. So that, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's not how we usually think of signifier. I think most people, if they said, what's a signifier do? Oh, that's what rep I'm representing something for someone else. Right. Yeah. Right. But no, he's saying it's actually you're representing it for another signifier. And that's why the hat on backwards. And I think that reading by that very ungenerous reading, but it's not bad, right? It's her point is, who are you trying to, who are you wearing that? What signifier yep. are you wearing that backwards hat for? Because it's not for me. If it was a sign, right. it would just be for me as a subject, but it's right. not for me as a subject. It's for some imaginary not imaginary in the Lacanian sense, but some <laughs> position out there that's that of a, of a big other that you're trying to mm-hmm. trying to speak to. 
and be validated by. And be validated by, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, this, this seems, you know, a little bit reminding me of our earlier discussion about why Deleuze and Guattari kind of fit together and why they needed each other. And one of the things I was thinking about was you see throughout Anti-Oedipus and in um, A Thousand Plateaus, probably in the Kafka book too, but this, this insistence that there's no metaphor, right? That machines aren't metaphor, and um, I'm sure they bring up autonomy too, but this seems to be trying to be in dialogue with Lacan and, and saying that, that they're sort of attempting this writing flush with the real or that they're describing this writing flush with the, the real, which obviously has Lacanian resonances. And so that seems to perhaps be where Guattari ne wouldn't necessarily follow the same logic uh, that you were describing, Todd, with how Lacan defines those terms. It would be interesting to see which what you and Ryan or Coop had to had to think about about that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fascinating because I would say that for Lacan, metaphor is absolutely fundamental. Yes. Right? There's no the notion that you're somehow getting at the real without a paternal metaphor, he would just say is I mean paternal is just indifferent, right? The master's metaphor, not necessarily father. It's structural. So I think the notion without some fundamental metaphorical substitution of something for nothing, right? then you can't, we don't have any way to touch the real at all. So I think that that's, to me, a real fundamental difference. Can you, can you somehow find a way of speaking without speaking, which I think is what Deleuze and Guattari would like to do. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. you can, or writing without writing, you know, like maybe you can invent a style that does that. Or... Do you understand that the way I put it is already prejudicing? And there, do you understand that that in order to get to that real, you have to have this, you have to deform through the symbolic. That I think is, I don't think that there's any way to have both. And I think metaphor, it's interesting because I think metaphor really is the where the rubber hits the road on that. Are you in, invested in this fundamental metaphoric substitution of something for nothing, or are you not? I think that um for Lacan, I think he would probably say the position that the Deleuze and Guattari take up a psychotic's position, mm -hmm. because in the position of the psychotic is, is really to, to take literally that which is metaphorical or has social symbolic resonance and, and, and to refuse. And it, it's, it would sort of be like, I don't know if I told the story on the podcast before, it's just a minor one from when I was at, at Walmart was when I, one time I was working at a new Walmart and because my store the one, the one that I worked at was being rebuilt. And what everyone did all the time was they used their measly 5% discount on snacks when they're on a 15 minute break. Now you're not literally supposed to do that. Now it's like, it's against the rules to do that, but everyone does it. Every single person did it. It was just, it was just understood because there was the rule and then there was the social symbolic rule. Right. And I remember the first time that I did this at this new Walmart, the person they didn't even, it was so funny. Like the person that they were checking out, which was a regular customer before they, you hit the button to make the thing roll the conveyor belt. And then they saw me, they saw the badge that I was working here. They saw my, my snacks, they hit the thing and then they stop it. So there was like a real nice sonic element to this. It was like, stop. And then they look at what I had there and they look at me. I'm like, are you on the clock? And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go take a 15. I can't do it. What do you mean you can't do it? Everyone does. You're on the clock. And that, right. that's the psychotics position. Because what, and as it, this person explained later in this exchange is that 
they could be fired for doing that, which is literally true. And it would never happen. Right. Ever. Right. It would, that would just, it would never happen. That one thing, if they wanted to fire you because for other reasons, then they would say, yeah, that's the thing they did it, but it's not because you did that thing. So now I've shifted the conversation to a Walmart <laughs> metaphor, but for as I, I want to do. So Lacan, Lacan would be on, on the side for the, the symbolic rule in that exchange. And then in, in this, it's Deleuze and Guattari. They want to pay attention to the, to the, the utter literality of it, which Lacan would consider and, and the position of the psychotic, which for them is freeing. And that is how, for them, that's how you escape. Because I think what they would say, if they were that person on the other side of the exchange with me, if I'm going to be fair to that position, is that I'm trying to get away with something within the symbolic law that I don't I don't see how I think that symbolic law is in some way freeing, but it's actually that which is oppressive. And that in an obedience to the literal, there is, there's, there's a way of, of finding a way out that I have decided I've disavowed for myself that I've foreclosed. I think that, I think that would be the the two different sides of that situation. And that makes perfect sense talking about it as a, as a psychotic perspective. We, two weeks ago, we were reading through Abraham and Turok's uh, The Wolfman's Magic Word. And together they wrote an essay called uh, Morning or Melancholia. And one of the things that they isolate in this building of, of the crypt and the crypt and the cryptonymic sense that they work out is one of the elements is demetaphorization. So taking the figurative literally. And so I think that resonates very much with, with what you just said. You know what I like about that is I don't know if you've ever had to, I don't know how many times you had to register a car in a new state, but I had a, my first car, my parents helped me buy. And there's a thing with the title. It, it said Ryan Engley and my father's name is, uh, is Chuck Ryan Engley and Chuck Engley. And I was trying to get it registered in Rhode Island. And they were like, can't do this. The title holder's not here. And I'm like, what are you talking oh, about? I'm right no. here. <laughs> and I'm like, no. And they're like, see, it's Ryan and Chuck. I'm right here. Why do we need him? And they're like, it's and. But what they told me was, I was like, but why do you, I'm just one of, why don't you? And they're like, if it said Ryan Engley or Chuck Engley, then we could do it. So I like that. Melancholy <laughs> and melancholia or melancholy, melancholy or melancholia. Let's, anyway, so yeah. It's that, it's that, uh, Gosh, it's that non-connective synthesis, or is that, is that what, not the exclusive disjunction, but that's what you need, the, the inclusive disjunction instead yes. of the, uh, it's not segregated. Now nah, I'm, I'm, doesn't matter. Coop, uh, you want to, you want to keep us, keep us rolling? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Brought us yes. to Walmart and the DMV. I, that's my, that's my fault. Hey, we, <laughs> we tend to diverge. We kind of have to have free association model for the yes. most part when go. it comes to the podcast. So. <laughs> We may, you know, I've prepared 30 pages of notes for episodes and we'll just, we'll just start riffing and it's good. So we'll, we'll, there you go. we'll print the episode, so to speak. Just a quick comment and I may reveal my own ignorance here, but I was just going back to what Todd said. I was thinking about, I was, asignification is a big thing for Guattari. I don't know if that had any relevance specifically to what Todd was saying in terms of finding a way to write without writing or speak without speaking. That's kind of the best um, I can describe it. And um, so I just wanted to yeah, throw that Cooper, out there I think fun. that's what it is. I mean, I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just think that that's a, Glacon would say that's a psychotic effort, just like Ryan was saying. And <laughs> yeah, that yeah. And that it's impossible. I mean, part of what he thinks is that by foreclosing the name of the father, you don't eliminate the name of the father, right? That's the problem. That's why for Lacan, the psychotics or the schizophrenics 
rebellion or, or revolution even is actually a feigned one because there always will be that, that metaphor in the background, just unavowed. So that mm-hmm. for, I think, I think that's why, you know, Verwerfung is the German that he gets mm-hmm. from Freud, but it's the, 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 this notion of, of foreclosure, which if you guys just talked about seminar three, you talked about this probably quite yes. a bit that, that, I think that fits with what, and that's what Ryan was talking about with what Deleuze and Guattari are doing. But I think you're right. A signification would be part of that. How do you write without that initial metaphor? Right. Right. Why I needed my dad to register my car. (laughs) Yeah, or that. (laughs) Next, I have a couple of quotes. I'm going to read these together. These are referencing Freud a bit. And I think these go back to maybe earlier on in the conversation and maybe even kind of move us forward towards uh, maybe VPP a little bit and death drive, etc. Quattari says here, the Freudian unconscious has no subject. Returning to Freud requires not putting any in there at whatever cost. Next passage, at the level of repressed and deterritorialized residues, supports for a new power, a new a-subjective filiation, the Freudian unconscious, reduced to the A in Lacan, potentially sublimation, diagrammatization. It seems to me that Lacan eliminates this order of polyvocality by turning it into linguistics. For example, when he declares that the primary process comes down to the Jakobson's metaphor and metonymy. That said, in practice, his fanatical attitude of reducing analysis to language leads to the schizophrenization of analysis, which is, of course, positive. Which Can I, I, start love, on this? I love this quote too. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, this is really interesting. It's a really nice quote that you picked, Cooper, because it, it shows the it shows the split. And this is the um mm. this is the big so Lacan and Lacan and Freud and Todd and 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 I and and slap, you know, just like uh, the Joan Kopchak. And there's a choice to be made. Like, are you on the side of the two, which is what psychoanalysis is, right. or are you on the side of the multiple? And that's yeah. where that's where Guattari find, finds himself here. And that's that's what ends up being the the project right. that that they articulate. And I mean, and that's and you know, it's not just them. As uh, Derrida does it as well. I mean, I think I think Judith Butler is on the side of the multiple. You know, certainly and. Here, the it's a, a poly poly of vocality or the or or, or polyphony or, or so yeah. what because I'm just so I'm just very I'm indebted to to Joan Kopchak. I just one time in class I remember her her saying that like the multiple gives you many, it doesn't give you more. And this was part of her argument for fidelity to the the two and for her absolute fidelity to the non-relation of the two that Lacan introduces, particularly in seminar 20. And that you don't you don't have a relationship with another. Like I think actually the Zoom situation is really great for this example because we're we're we are literally in the same space, but we are we're not. We're actually figuratively in the same space, but like on a screen, literally we're in the same place space. We're not seeing all of each other. We're seeing like from the chest up, like all four of us, and more or less what the relationship we're having right now is not with each other, but it's with our voices. Right. And 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 that is an, an, an object for for Lacan. So and that's part of the, the non-relation. You're not having a relationship with a whole person. W-H-O-L-E. You're having a relationship with a whole person. H-O-L-E, as I like to put it. You are all having a relationship right now with my voice. It's it's going to fail to to coincide because what I mean for me is not what I'll mean for you. But you're going to understand me in a certain way. And this conversation is going to move forward and we're going to go. We're going to we're going to run with that. And that's what's going to happen. And and it's it's so the impossibility of saying all in, in language is what allows for that, that more to come through. So I, so it's, and I 
think it's arguable that Guattari is seeing this in the same way, but from a different angle, or as Bob Dylan saying, we always did feel the same. We just saw it from a different point. I think that's, I think that's it for the con. It's, it's, it has to be in this, in this two, it has to be in this, in this non-relation for there to be a proliferation of signification. And that I think like, as we've kind of gotten to like for, for Deleuze and Guattaria at the, uh, for Guattaria at this time, like that's a limiting situation that doesn't allow for like, like they want to uh, get out of that. So anyway, yeah, Todd. No, I think that's really good. I mean, I, I obviously totally agree with that. I also think I want to talk about the, the first quotation you read, Cooper, because I don't, I don't think so, I guess. I think the Freudian unconscious, that is what he means by subject. So I think it doesn't have a subject in the sense that it doesn't have a traditional subject of mastery, right? Mm. But I don't think that we should read subjectivity as subject of mastery. And so that, I, I mean, I think to me, that's what subjectivity is also one of these really crucial points, right? Where Deleuze and Guattari really don't want to invoke subjectivity at all because they associate it with mastery over the field, like the visual field, oral field, whatever. But I think here, unconscious, to suggest that the subject is at least primarily unconscious is to suggest that it's not mastery, but it's actually subjectivity is what Hegel means by it. And this comes back to Ryan's point. Subjectivity means that you're cut, you're cut in. And so you're always cut in two, you're, you're never able to coincide with yourself. And I agree with what Ryan was saying that I would just add this, that multiplicity can hide that cut within the subject. And I think Mm. that's what, I think that's why figures like Joan and Slavoj are, are find that that multiplicity as a bit of anathema because it has the effect of obfuscating Mm. contradiction. And so I think that that, you know, like if you have the multiple, you don't see the contradiction in the one or the two, I guess that would be how I would put it. And as and as Todd said earlier, like this this is also why I think as I think has been made clear, we don't like Lacan as a person, but we really like the the theory because it exceeds the the person. As Todd pointed out, Lacan introduces uh, with surplus jouissance in seminar sixteen is a contradiction that he t- just he leaves. It's a cut he t- he <clears throat> tries to flee from. So even though even though he understands. In there is no sexual relation. He understands this non-relation. He understands the cut. He understands the two. He understands not avoiding a contradiction, like contradiction of the. I, I don't think he, that that's like a very Hegelian way to put it. So I don't think he would have thought of it that way exactly. But he understood the the idea, the contradiction at the heart of of subjectivity, and yet he still in not in all cases does he follow that through, and 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 like that rather than. It's one of those things where like it undermines him, undermines him as a figure, but it all, it validates the theory. That is a, a kind of a, a, a torsion that, that we like to, to play on and think on and, and, and work through. The way I read this statement from Guattari that the Freud unconscious has no subject in his, it's almost like a, a wager. And it is polemical because for, for Lyotard in libidinal economy, the, the one way that Lacan keeps showing back up in the book is it's a fundamental disagreement about whether it be showcasing or, or uh, foregrounding the subject or subjectivity. And for Leotard, he, he wants to wager and, and fight against that. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari take that up similarly in their way of, you know, when they read Freud, they say that it, that there's no uh, fixed object. There's only a fixed subject. Right. And this is related to Freud's, obviously his concept of fixation. And so I think they too struggle against 
one of the stakes of Lacan's, uh, I mean, you could see it throughout his work, which is this fundamental stake of figuring out what role the subject plays in analysis in, in life uh, and how Lacan is constantly trying to say that the subject is not the ego, right? And that's one of the, at least in the early seminars, that seems to be one of his fundamental points that he always returns to. And so in that sense, I wonder if that, if any of that are, uh, can, can kind of shed light on this, on this break, this epistemic break, or this, whether it merely be even like a linguistic break and why, you know, the machinic becomes foregrounded for Deleuze and Guattari as a way of scuttling the subject. Yeah, Taylor, that's interesting. So I guess what I don't get, so yeah, I agree totally this critique of the ego, right? Like that's incredibly important for, for Lacan, but that doesn't, I don't think that for, for Guattari, that goes far enough, right? As long as they're retained, as long as Lacan and psychoanalysis retain subjectivity, that seems to be the, the problem, right? So, and I, I, I guess, I, I guess I keep getting hung up on this Freudian unconscious has no subject. And I guess for me, like, and the notion that, and then in the second quotation that Cooper read, like that the Freudian unconscious is reduced to the A in Lacan. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't see that as a reduction uh, or do I see it as like, that's the extent of the unconscious. Like, I think he would say the unconscious is wider than that, but but I also think A is, why wouldn't Deleuze and Guattari think the A is this important break, this important cut in signification, because I think that's what it is. And so I don't, I guess I don't get why reduced is the, is the gerund attached to the object because I, it just doesn't seem I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's like it's a reduction to me. Well, this yeah, and and this is part of this is where reading the 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 papers can be. I assume Coop this from the yes, yes, yeah. This is where reading the papers can be confusing sometimes because a a lot of the positions actually change or are not retained. uh, And this obviously doesn't make it into the um, to Antiepis. One of the things that they actually give credit to Serge Leclerc for is coming up with this uh, machinic object, whether they call it object X or machinic object A. They, yeah, yeah. They take that and run with it. Um, but this this uh, critique doesn't, it, it's at least transformed in, in, the, in, in the published book. I do think that you're right. That is confusing to say that the Freudian unconscious would, would be... Whether he means that it is reduced to the awe, or if Lacan reduces, I think he's saying Lacan reduces. Yeah, which seems like a productive misreading, right? If it's a misreading at all, but I I mean, I think that that, yeah, I don't know. know. If I were reading it charitably in line with, with with how you work through Abjaya and Capitalism and Desire, it does seem like you guys can have a rapprochement on this point. Basically, being that it is this question of of desire ceaselessly missing the object that would be full satisfaction right but right I, that is true but object that's just the imaginary dimension of object so object right, also okay. has this real dimension to it as well so that interesting which i think that's again why the term reduction seems to miss gotcha. the, the real which i think would think that guatari would want to embrace that's it's un, it's unfortunate. I know we we've dumped on uh, seminar seventeen a little bit, but it's un, it's unfortunate. But for the I think for a good reason because what 
Lacan, this is, I think, our position. We haven't done an episode on it yet. Spoiler alert. Position is that he, what he tries to do, I mean, as Todd said earlier, he tries to find a way to structurally eliminate his own position of mastery and in so doing just finds another way to kind of calcify it. But what's unfortunate about that being the project is that it is in with the four discourses. And as I think the most charitable way to put it is Todd is uh, your friend, uh, Rick Boothby puts it that Lacan's moving from the triadic to the quadratic. Mm. And in this move to the quadratic, what, and this comes out a lot in Seminar 23 that is published in English, um, the official one, the, the one on the Santome, is how inextricable the three orders are. So as, as Todd right. just said, that it certainly occurred to Lacan in stages, his three orders. And you can, if you, you can read, if you stop at a certain point, they can seem related, of course, but a little separate. Like you can separate their, their dimensionality from each other. But as he goes further in his career, they just become, you can't separate anything and anything. There is a, it sounds, you get into jargony gibberish, but there is an imaginary, there's an imaginary dimension of the real. There's a symbolic dimension to the real. There's a real dimension of the real. And the best working through of this, I think, we're both agreed on this is the preface to the second edition of Zizek's for they know not what they do. He spends a lot of time working through it and it's, uh, it's quite good, but it's, I don't know that I guess, I guess I don't, I don't totally blame Guattari for the, the idea of the, the reduction here, because this is, it's a, a Lacan, it's a progressive understanding as well that like, I mean, like these ideas are, that's why you get the knots. Like you can't, like you just, yeah. you, you, you can't separate one from the other. And he's focusing on, one dimension here and that's that's and 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 that is i mean i think that almost comes from like lacan lacan himself not not making that as uh, as, as as clear as as it probably should be and that's a good point because it, it you know just the chronology would show that lacan really uh, starts to concretize the inextricability of the three orders only a few years after these little notes I, I assume 16 would what be in the early mid 70s if I no 16s in the 60s okay yeah because okay, 11 then, is 65 I think right, then, then, right then 11 60, 64 I think 60, oh, 60, so then yeah. so then so then so then doesn't have an excuse <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay well I think Ryan's right to talk about the Bromian knot because that it's when I mean, I lament this very much that he got to deal with these knots, but the point of the knot is that the three, like you pull one out and all take one of the string out and the whole knot falls apart. And that's the idea of the relation between RSI, uh, real Symmetrium, the symbolic Symmetrium. And that seminar is not out. RSI is not out. That's yeah. It does seem though that that this is, from what I've read about this move towards the knots is Lacan becoming more, what's the word? I was I was going to make a pun, but it's not good. Uh, <laughs> Lacan becoming more reticent in his seminars and almost as though the knots were a way of speaking without speaking to come back to to some of this stuff that we we mentioned earlier. Um, it's very I'm, good. It's very I'm good. Sh- and I think that, I think you're right to say that it comes back to what Cooper said about asignification, right? Like, I think that maybe this is a point at which which I think, you know, again, I lament this turn later turn. Like, I think for me, after 16, like, dead letter. But okay. Mm. But I, I think, I mean, that's probably overstated. And I, I mean, I have friends that just think that the sexual non-relation is so important. But do you know, sorry, I, Todd, I have to interrupt you really, and you should finish. But I, someone <laughs> is, um, 
I know someone who in their dissertation, they're quoting me calling you slash and burn McGowan. <laughs> uh, oh. so, anyway. <laughs> so anyway, just that's what I was just doing. But anyway, yes, but, yeah. my, <laughs> but my point is that I think that you could say, couldn't you, that Lacan is being influenced back by Deleuze and Guattari yes. in those later Absolutely. seminars. That the whole stuff with the knots is his own later yes allergy to representation yes. because the knot is not and he even said what's interesting ryan alluded to the seminar it's in french it's rse right like rsi that seminar rsi doesn't stand for anything right like it's not <laughs> he even says it's not real symbolic imaginary it's rsi and the way they intersect so i think that that is a really interesting thing that yes. you could read this causality back into and so that my then rejection of the late Lacan is actually just another rejection of Deleuze <laughs> and Guattari. Hey, yes, absolutely. Rejection of <laughs> we're, we're working through these. That's magnificent. These yeah, that's magnificent. That's, <laughs> that's so yeah. good. Yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> I wasn't going to read this one because it's a little bit incendiary, but I think, I don't know. I feel like we're on a good track. Yeah, with we're these, on a good so, track. Yeah, slash, so. slash and burn. Slash so and here, burn here, here comes, a, yeah, right there. Here comes, this is going to drop some napalm on, on you with this one. It's another quote from Guattari. Who is talking? Who is desiring? Asked Lacan. It's the other. But the other is a machine, not mommy daddy. The schizoanalytic revolution is about moving beyond the splitting of the ego, beyond Kleinian explosion. We can't be satisfied with fighting a losing battle anymore. We have to go on the offense. Rather than submit to the splitting, we have to go forward to the subject of enunciation. We're not describing replacement scenes psychodramatic scenes, psychoanalytic scenes, but abolishing the subject by constructing collective agents of enunciation. Interesting. God, I love this quote. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fascinating, really. You know, the other thing is it it reminds me that the last line, even though Badu wouldn't say it this way, it reminds me a lot of Alain Badu, right? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. like the notion of, he would say we're constructing the subject by constructing collective agents of enunciation. But I think that just because for him, the subject is always collective. It's always the subject of the event. Yes. So there's no, there's no subject of the signifier for Badu, which is, in, which I think it's interesting because that puts him more proximate to Deleuze and, or mm -hmm. to Guattari in this sense. But I think that that's, I think a lot of this, I don't necessarily disagree with. I think that although it's important that he says it's the, uh, when he says it's the other, he doesn't say capital big other, right? I right. Think that, yeah. Because I think who is talking, who's desiring as the con, it's the big other. Yes. Right? It's not the other. It's not like the, that little other imaginary or real has to be got to these through yes. the big other. So I think, and, and the big other is a machine. And then I think not mommy, daddy, I think that's all right. Yeah. I think so there's a way I think, one thing I like about Deleuze and Guattari and anti-Oedipus is that they're trying to move the focus from the family to the social structure that that structures the family. And I think Lacan- That's, like, that's very Lacanian. I know, yeah. I, I was yeah. going to say is. that. Yeah. I was going to say that, right. Like that's, yeah. that's a way in which what they're doing, again, I, I really think I insist on negation and representation, but that part of the project, that part of like moving that emphasis, I think is 100% correct. I have no quarrel with that at all. So to me, the critique of Oedipus, I think is right on. Like, I think that that is a, that is a, pro and I think Lacan himself comes, I, there's a divide between Lacanians on this Oedipus question, really significant divide. 
but I think that that's I so that I think is is right. And I think going forward to the subject of enunciation, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think it's through abolishing the subject that you construct collective agents of enunciation. However, I think you it's only by embracing the subject that right. you construct the collective. But that's just I mean that's a theoretical dispute. Right. But I mean, you're, you're right to bring in Badu here about the collective agents of enunciation because it, it, it fits very well in with his discussion of fidelity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I don't know if Guattari would like that, that <laughs> word, that word choice, but theoretically, they would be very close. I think that's right, Taylor, like the way in which for Badu, because isn't he also I was thinking about the minor, the other, you know, when we were just in thinking about this thing coming on the show. And the minor really, I mean, like for that, for Deleuze and Guattari, it's, it's the minor is a, has to be a becoming, right? And so that yes. I think is not, that doesn't necessarily con, coincide with what psychoanalysis does. But I think that this note, that notion of the minor, I think does fit with what Badu says, calls the location for the event or what mm-hmm. for, psychoanalysis is something like the position of non-belonging, right? Like, like and, and I think it's interesting that for Deleuze and Guattari, minor and major doesn't mean a quantity. It means a certain right. structural position. Right. And I think that is that structural position, the privileging of the minor. And then they go like in the Kafka book, it's right. Becoming woman, becoming animal, become, all these different things. Like in a way, that fits right in with a certain Badu Lacan way of thinking about this certain structural position. Right. That then is the site of radicality. So for Badu, that becomes the site of the event. For Lacan, it's the you know it's the site of the, some kind of a rupture, uh, some kind of a breakthrough of the real. What you were saying about about Badu and the and the minor, it, it reminded me of uh, him with his warnings in, in his book on um, his essay on evil, right? His book on the event, which he wrote for high schoolers, but I find very constructive in terms of fleshing out some more ideas of the subject's relation to the event, which is particularly one of the concerns is that there is no full event, right? There's no privileged event for privileged subjects. It's gotta be, it's gotta have a, a sort of foundation of universality, lest fascism and these other bugbears uh sort of creep back in right taylor it's why 9 11 is not an event really for because for for whom like what did that what did that do that just to use a word i used earlier that just calcified already like already racist like islamophobic you know uh you know arab country like so it, it 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 did not lift up and also controversially, this is also why he doesn't think the holocaust is an event because it didn't lift up it it that did not lift up jewish people that event yeah todd well, I would just say Steven Spielberg thought it did. Yeah. Why, well, that's that great that great line, right? The 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 Stanley Kubrick. I think we said it a long time ago on the yeah, show. That, like, Kubrick's line. Kubrick, Kubrick was 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 asked once that if there's any what like, if there's any topic that couldn't be filmed, and he said the the Holocaust. Holocaust. And someone you said, know, Kubrick like, said you, Kubrick said you can't make a great film about the Holocaust. And his the screenwriter he was with says, "What about Schindler's List?" And Kubrick says. Schindler's List was a film about a thousand Jews who lived. Holocaust is about six million Jews who died. That's which is great. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. exactly right. Well, well, Badu, Badu himself says death is not an event. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I want to say two things though. So first of all, I think he wrote that book for high schoolers in French, which means in America <laughs> it's for people that have a PhD, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing I would say is that I think that that the notion that there is 
death cannot be event. There's no negative negativity to the event. That puts, I think, even though Betty wrote this scandalous book on Deleuze, right? Like that everyone yes. Deleuzean hates, right? But in a way, there's more proximity, I think, between Badu and Deleuze because of this attitude toward negation than there is between Badu and Zizek. I really think that because Badu does not, there is no space for negativity, I think, in Badu's thought. And for him, death is really, it's not a problem like it is for, right. or negation isn't a problem like it is for, I mean, like, he's not a, di and, and this is why also he's not a dialectical thinker. And I think that also puts him you know, the event and the situation are not dialectically related. The event is just, it's a whole, it's not, right. in that sense, it's not real like Lacan, because for Lacan, real is dialectically related to symbolic, right? So that's why you can't just say, oh, uh, Badu's event is like the real for, no, it cannot be because right. of that. And I, so I think that there, it's interesting that there's, despite their polemics, and despite Badu's hostility to Deleuze, and, and, but I think there still is a real more of a connection there precisely because of this thing that I want to insist on is a fundamental negativity. And I see yes. like, radical action as tied to a fundamental negativity. And that seems to me a real split between what I would call Hegelian psychoanalytic dialectical position and the Deleuzean Guattarian position. Badu's book on Deleuze, you know, I, I love how he does preface it by saying, it's not necessarily written in bad faith or maliciously, even though it's taken that way. Right. But that what I focused on was the kind of, he indicates a kind of sibling rivalry, yeah. right? That they're so close. They're almost, they're almost these, these blood brothers, you know, that even if they focus on, you know, whether it be Deleuze on algebra and Badu on calculus, et cetera. I mean, they, or I think I'm getting it the reverse, sorry, uh, Badu on calculus, uh, but you, you see what I mean? That they, yeah, yeah. they, they do come close on very so and 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 Badu kind of espouses that there is this there is this brotherhood there. I think that's um, right. I think it's right, and I think it, you know, it's just I don't know if this reveals anything, but it's a lot better than his book on Lacan, right? You come away from the book on Deleuze saying, okay, I have a new way of thinking about Deleuze mm -hmm. that I didn't have before. It could be right, it could be wrong, but at least. But you come away from his Lacan book, and you're like, I I have got nothing new from about. Interesting. Lacan. Yeah, I feel like I I mean. Maybe that's because I know more about Lacan when I read it, so that might not be Makes fair. Sense, but yeah. I, but I do think every Deleuzean I know thinks the book on Deleuze is unfair. But it, it is what's interesting is he kind of does to Deleuze, don't you think? What Deleuze does to every other thinker, like it's he, totally buggery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. is, and and that's how I chose to read Organs Without Bodies. I know that people around Zizek apparently discouraged him from from publishing the book, but what I I take I take it as this epic joke that. You, you think it's a book on Deleuze and it's the first 20 pages talk about him, but then the next 200 are, are on Hegel. And I, I just <laughs> think that that's, that's his own way of telling a kind of buggery joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. When people say, well, Deleuze, Zizek wrote a book on Deleuze. I'm like, no, have you read it? Not, not really, no. <laughs> he didn't. He wrote another book on Hegel. Like it, and it's yeah. pretty good. I think it's it is pretty, pretty good. good, but it's not a book on Deleuze. You know, if you like, come to it expecting a book to lose, then you will be triggered. Be or disappointed upset. because yeah. look, look, he try, there are these things. You're right, Taylor. First twenty pages, he's oh, look, Deleuze says this. It's like Hegel say, sorry, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you have to be fair to Deleuze. If there's one political and philosophical opponent he has, it's Hegel, right? That's from beginning to end. I think yeah. when he says Nietzsche's philosophy of, of the Ubermensch has absolutely nothing to do with the dialectical 
structure yeah. of Hegel. He just so, and I think it, it's an anti-Oedipus. It's just from beginning to A to Z, it's rejection of Hegel. So I don't think you can. I mean, I love Slavoj, and I I like every book that he wrote, but I think that one. I think it's good, but I think it just can't be done. You can't make Deleuze into a Hegelian. There is a very brave book by Veronique Bergen. It's called Deleuze's Ontology. It's it's this massive tome. Anyway, she she sets up what she argues will be reading Deleuze and Hegel as each other's dark night. And I find that intriguing, at least in its ambition, whether she succeeds or not. I think that that is where you would have to go to really, you know, because I think for Zizek, he, he, it's not a cop out necessarily, but he doesn't, as I said, it's a buggery, it's a joke, but you know, that's where you're totally right. Where if you were going somewhere doing, pushing Deleuze to the limit or, or whatever you want to call it, it would be this productive, whether misreading it or not, this productive buggery, this Hegelian buggery of Deleuze. And I think that he would enjoy that um, because even if he calls Kant and Hegel enemies, there's something about, whether it be his Spinozist, uh, you know, soul or whatever, there's something, you know, whether it be his affirmationism or whatever. Right. That, he shouldn't be allowed to reject anyone. Right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, so even, even it's, it's Hegel's more of a frenemy, right? Because there's no, I, I don't think Deleuze really has that that hateful bone in his body. And I always thought- Except there's that, not one yeah. single, I think, you know no. this better than me, but I don't think there's one single positive statement on Hegel and his entire philosophical corpus. It's interesting though, because he does, Hegel does do a lot of work for him in difference repetition, whether yeah. even if he takes Hegel as his foil or as his, it's always productive there at least. And so, and I feel like that 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 has a lot to do with his work on the genre he believes. And I wonder if the Hegel renunciation is a part of that kind of that Oedipal uh, struggle with, with his dissertation chair, uh, you know, and him, him saying like, we're, he and Foucault were one, one of the last generations to be like schooled in this old school philosophy. Mm-hmm. And you brought up yourself, um, Lacan's attending of the lectures of Kojo and, yeah. and how important that is and how you can't overlook, you know, even if Zizek wants to make a perfect sense of Lacan and Hegel, that I think Lacan stays true to a kind of tension between the Freudian dialectic and the Hegelian one, which we've talked about before in, in the subversion of the subject essay. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, before we end, Coop. In, well, Taylor, well hold on, Taylor. I want yeah, to please I respond. Wanna, please no, respond. I want to interrupt. No, no, just because th- it keeps coming up. I, I, I think where what we've come to, this has come up a number of different times. Todd and I, I, I mean, we agreed perhaps fundamentally with a, a Deleuze and Guattari thing, which is that we, we don't much we don't make that much of the Oedipal situation as we don't try to, we try not to give that much explanatory power to it. And, and what has come up a number of different times is not the father relationship, but a sibling one. I think you've mm. used that word a couple of different times. There's one, the one book that I know of that does psychoanalysis and, and seriality. And it's by Juliet Mitchell. It's called Siblings, Colon, Sex and Violence. And what she gets into in that book, it's a really interesting claim just to reproduce it in a sentence. It's not that long of a book, but it's that it's, that siblings are a series. So you can see this with, with twins even, or Todd, you have fraternal twin point. Yeah, right. So her claim is that it's someone who it's like you, but it's not you. It's this repetition, but it's also not. And it's not even, it's not, it's a minimal difference and it's, it's not enough. And it's that, and it's, it's on that level of that minimal difference or, and I think what we're going to, it's on that level of proximity that creates this tension. 
And so what produces the the tension in, in, in Baju's Deleuze book, it's their proximity. Yeah. What produces, you know, the tension between uh, Guattari and and uh, and Lacan, it's actually their proximity. Yep. It, like like that, I think that would be like another way of looking yeah. at it. And 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 it's and I, I think it's more productive than than looking at it as the and as the the Oedipal relation like I mean because I think it was the second episode we did on Deleuze where I I mentioned a, a friend of mine that I, I was doing this Deleuze triptych about and they're like well isn't anti-Oedipus the most Oedipal book and I just don't think that's like a real engagement with that thing on the one hand totally is but it's not, it doesn't really get into anything it doesn't really explain anything and right. so I think that looking at the frenemy, the proximity of the sibling and this tension, I think is, uh, there's a little more juice to it. I guess I put it that way. And the losing Hegel then could be, you know, yes, exactly. Be well, it's funny. Well, it's really funny because in, you brought this up in difference of repetition. Like I lose my mind about this line from Deleuze because it's like on page like 74 or something. And it's just, I think I'm going to have it exactly right. Cause I've like quoted it somewhere. A contradiction does not pose much of a problem for Hegel period. It's something like that. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That's a whole thing. That, and, that but, is funny. But it's actually, if you read Deleuze's, like it's Deleuze's reading, he's actually talking about himself. Contradiction, he wants to find a way out of that deadlock. And so he sees in Hegel someone who doesn't find a satisfying way out of that deadlock. And then, and that's how, that's how he positions his project. So I think that, that like, it's at the, it's at the level of, of proximity that, that you, you get maybe a more productive tension than in, in that, I think in a Juliet Mitchell to reference her, cause I think she's great. It's more of a sibling relationship than it is an edible one. Yeah. Yeah. Deleuze is, is the bearded Hegel, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> the beardless marks, the, the bearded Hegel. Yeah. I, you know, I think that that, that's, that's, that's good. I was going to suggest Coop before, we go. You did want to mention at least something about Death Drive, or oh, go ahead, Ryan. Coop, no, Coop. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great. Um, this is a great section. But oh, my, my only thing there. Um, someone, someone tweeted that. Um, Jameson, I guess, in a lecture, somewhat recently, said Cathexis is. And he paused. A stupid made-up word. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yes. The great irony is that I love the word cathexis not, I mean, it, it has only, a poetic ring to it but only yes the aesthetics of it not necessarily the the signification or it's more it's mooring to the translation but or, or, yeah, or the it, idea. yeah i don't yeah. know it just sounds i don't know i cathected cathexis it's it has a good there is like there's some jouissance in there yeah, yeah i mean there is there is something and maybe because of its stupidity it has, <laughs> it has, that would be a nice, that's, that's a nice, I mean, hey. I had a professor, a professor Nouvet at Emory and she hated anaclysis because we were doing Laplanche and you know how important it is to talk about the, the propping of the sexual drives on the self-preservative drives. And I think Strakey may translate it sometimes as, as attachment or attach. I could I be wrong, so. yeah. uh, which, which I think is unfavorable because later with attachment theory right i'm wondering i mean at the time would instinct have had all the commonplace i think so because you think it post darwin so yeah okay i'm being i'm being devil's advocate (laughs) i think it would so speaking of attachment yeah uh can you find something worthwhile in this garbage (laughs) <laughs> so Cooper, Cooper, did you want to read it or yeah, um, yeah, as, sorry. as you've been doing? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I'm going right, to, I'll read. And I, I think actually, Todd, you've really sort of just, I mean, this isn't really saying anything specific. I think you've even addressed this directly just in terms of the, the revolution of, of 1920, but I'll go ahead and read. 
If we understand death instincts here as the subject's attachment to loss, this brief sentence at the conclusion of Freud's brief book provides the most thoroughgoing critique of capitalism that anyone has ever written. The recognition that we are not really pursuing pleasure frees us from the chains of capitalism more completely than any other revolutionary gesture. Todd, no, certainly no. bombastic enough, right? Like, geez, like who who the hell writes like that? I just I'm, this is terrible. Oh, you All guys right, so, should read Leotard, and uh, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, so Todd, I'm gonna not, uh, not allow him to do the self-deprecating thing because what what he so what he gets at in the book and that I, that I think is singularly worthwhile. There you go. Um, <laughs> is the the. Ever, like you'll see this everywhere, Thomas Piketty, like even like left-wing economists like Dean Baker, uh, you, you even see it in popular, even it'll make the opinion pages of uh, New York Times or, or, or whatever, is that like, look at how irrational capitalism is. How can we continue to do, look, shouldn't we refuse? And it's it's at the level of logic, like it's this objective thing, like we can choose it and, and enter into it. And what Todd's whole thing is, is that, yeah, actually there, we have an attachment to a psychical attachment to capitalism that has not yet been explored. And it is, this is, ex, it is at this level that is why it continues to proliferate and nothing to do with logic and has nothing to do with markets. It has nothing even to do with the actual power in inverted commas that a that a certain corporate entity or group of corporations may have is actually a psychical attachment to it. So I'm going to give a concrete example of a psychical attachment to uh, Todd. And I can't remember if this if this is an example ends up in your book, but in the U.S. we and I mean other countries have this too, but it's really prominent in the U.S. that there is an attachment to working yourself to the bone. 80 hours, you're a surgeon doing 100 hours a week. It's not about the the specific surgeon. It's that's what it is to be a surgeon is you're working 80, 100 hour weeks. In our field, in academia, I just saw this, I forget who did this, that to be a professor is actually 67 smaller jobs. Someone broke this down yeah. that, and this is why people get like, get burned out. But there is just this, you know, you see this fantasy, this attachment to the idea of the educator that is the killing themselves for the kids. And they're doing in high school or grade school, they're, they're doing all kinds of volunteer drives to get supplies for the, for the students is like, isn't this uplifting? Look at what these people are right. and And all of this amounts to is this attachment to a system that runs on you not being compensated for all of this labor that you're putting into it. And it runs on, and, and this where the surplus jouissance becomes a, the, the thing. It is at this level of attachment to the system that, that it works ideologically. And one of the most important things that Zizek wrote about ideology is he imports this line of, of Marx, which is that, you know, they don't know what they're doing, but they're doing it. And the reason why that's important is that if you don't have this as part of your notion of, of, of ideology and why capitalism is so rampant, then it is just all rational, thoughtful actors doing things intentionally. And then that ends up being, I, I almost think that where does the conspiracy theorist diverge from something that's actually close reading? And I, I think it's here it, 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 where people are do, people are, are doing something, they're prop, they're propping up the system, they're, they're helping it reproduce itself exactly as it is now, and they don't know that they're doing it. And part of it is this is the psychical attachment really to a status quo that invalidates one. And it is through that attachment that 
one finds a, a jouissance in this invalidating yes. and malicious and destructive yes. system. Yeah. So yeah, but, but Ryan, all I yeah. would say is the destructiveness of it is what makes it attractive. Right. Like, right. Yes. Like yes. I think yeah. to me, that's the thing. Like, yeah. The fact that you're sacrificing. And you can't turn it off logically. That's that's kind of my point. point. Yes, like it's, right, it's not right. that like you face it, you stack up all the evidence and you're like, oh, well, now I'm going to reject that thing. Right. Sorry, I'll, she, I'll let you go. Yeah. I do think Slavoj was quoting Christ. Not Martin no, Matt. I know. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> that's uh, funny. Yeah. I think that that's really right that you and I, I just think that the illogic is the attraction. Like if you're sacrificing for something then you're not really sacrificing and you're not really in, enjoying it in the way as that you do when you sacrifice for nothing. So I think that that's really, that capitalism really gets at that. And then, but then the main thing I think that it does is that it has this other face, which is the conscious face, which says, oh, I'm just pursuing my self-interest all the time. All that I'm doing is pursuing my self-interest. Right. So to me, that is what I find fascinating is that it has the one side that completely plays on our, our, the structure of our enjoyment and that we're unaware of. And then the, uh, that is purely destructive sacrifice for nothing. Yes. And then the other side, which is the exact opposite, which says, all you're doing is pursuing your self-interest. And that's what makes this, that's Adam Smith, right? We all pursue our yeah. self-interest and everybody, everybody wins. So I think that that, to me, that coincidence of those two things is the crucial part of it. If yeah, I can right. respond quickly, I wanted to say that that's a big part of what's in libidinal economy for Leotard is first, I mean, if you had to distill the book down into one phrase, it would be all political economy is libidinal economy. But to go to Todd's other point about the enjoyment of the suffering, one of the most famous passages from the book is describing the English steelworkers or miners or, or something of like that. They had this attitude of hold me tight and spit on me, which is this effectively kind of making that same argument is that it's the it's the breaking down and it's the suffering of the work that they enjoy that. And that's how the system persists. I think that's great. I mean, Ryan was right to describe, it's not, it's just the miners, it's the professor does it right. maybe right. more than anybody, right? Yeah. I think I'm as guilty of that as right. the next person, if not more than the next person. <laughs> and and Leotard has a scathing attack uh, on, I guess, academic Marxists at the time. And he calls them kind of lily. It's a whole polemic that I won't go into. Another thing that I found interesting in what Todd said and in the book too, is this notion of, of rational self-interest. You kind of described it, and I'm guessing this is probably kind of the Hegelian in, in Stirner and in, in kind of your studies, is that you're almost describing, there's a work called The Right to be Greedy, and it's by an anonymous group published in the 70s, but it kind of makes the same argument, is that capitalist self-interest is not real self-interest, in, in scare quotes, it's not real enjoyment. If people were rationally enjoying their or uh, rationally pursuing self-interest, then they would overthrow the system. They would, it wouldn't be tenable. So. But there wouldn't be enjoyment. That's the thing. That's like the rationally, problem, right? Yeah. Like rationally pursuing, there's no enjoyment in rationally pursuing. So that, that's what, that is what, yeah. that's what drives, that's what drives the mainstream liberal thing like nuts. Like they don't get exactly. the, the yeah. right wing. Like, how do you not see how we know how the market can work for you? Like, how do you not rationally? <laughs> not only does that, does that suck philosophically, but it's also, there's no enjoyment there either. And that's, that's the, the pull that, that the right has that, that Todd is trying to, I think in a lot of more recent a lot of his more recent work is, is trying to to tease that out and like and make that manifest in a way that it's I, I don't think it is in, in the general political discourse. Right. You know, if we if we just stick with Freud and this, I guess 
to piggyback off what Todd was saying and Ryan, um, this notion that is it is it because Freud makes explicit that the it's the constitutive failure, the self sabotaging that you describe that that is the compulsion to repeat, and it, it is about sort of missing the satisfaction, or it is that 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 repeat that repetition of failure that actually in the end, you know, as you describe it, Freud does say at the end of the book that even if scientific speculation can't shed more light on this, there is something that the that the pleasure principle is sort of supporting or, or serving uh, the death instincts is, could you say a little bit more on that or maybe tie that in here? Yeah. The, I mean, that's the idea that I think that these two sides of, I, just to connect to capitalism, right? That this pleasure principle would be the pursuit of self-interest. And then that serves the underlying self-destructiveness. And I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting because you can think about a way in which you're, you're just pursuing your self-interest. I go, Ryan and I both love Coca-Cola. We think it's one of the great inventions in history, right? And so I'm just pursuing my self-interest in getting a Coke, right? It's pleasure It's just pleasure in drinking it. But I'm also destroying myself, right? Like mm. I'm, I'm like it's it's one of the. I think people now are pretty sure like soft soda is one of the worst possible things you can consume, and so. Also, there's the, the, the most amount of plastic in the ocean is Coca-Cola bottles. It's okay, just like, another, like just right, a whole everywhere. other, yep. that's a whole yeah. other way. Of that's fractal ontology. Right? Yeah. So, so that destructiveness is, I think what Freud's point is that the pleasure that I'm getting from the drinking is actually serving that underlying self-destructiveness. And I think that's why I think this the revolution and Freud himself, the book is so great because you can see him trying to, capture his own struggle with this concept. Wait, I can integrate this. A lot of people say, well, the Fort Dog game, it's about mastery over, well, no, because Freud's whole point is that doesn't explain. Mastery doesn't explain. Mastery is an attempt to explain the self-destruction through the pleasure principle, but it doesn't work in the end. And so I think that that, and that's why Ryan, I think his points about the, the very, the way the enjoyment works against all logic, all sense, that's really how it works. And I think that's what Freud's getting at. And I think he himself didn't really, I think he didn't have time to really fully work it out because it can't, you know, he died 18 years, 18 years yeah. a long time. But I just think he ne- he didn't really come to grips with what that meant, that death drive, that, that self-destruction. And I think to me that, that once you see that as fundamental, then a lot follows and then capitalism's effectiveness becomes becomes clearer Clear, right. to me. Just to re- re- reiterate the the last, the Marx quote you end the book with, I really appreciate it. And I thought that that consolidated, if it could be summed up in a citation or a reference, yeah, you sort of trace the trajectory of this movement from volume one of capital, which is from capitalism's own perspective on itself to Marx, which, and it's funny because you, you do say that volume two is the drier of the, the trilogy, right? That, yeah. which, you know, obviously we don't have time for, but the quote is basically that capitalism would already have crumbled or be overthrown if we, I don't know if it'd be unconsciously or, or rationally, it wouldn't be rationally, obviously, but if, if we understood that enjoyment rather than enrichment was what we're pursuing. At stake. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing, it's how did he, it seems like he shouldn't have said that, right? Like, <laughs> like, like it's just one of these moments where he first kinda, liberal economist, <laughs> right, right? Right? He transcended himself. It really, it really is to me one of the great moments, and I find that book almost 
boringly unreadable. <laughs> like it really is just, uh, whereas volume three is amazing. So it's an interesting kind of down point and then it comes back up. To me, that's Marx's greatest, greatest line. And I, I, I found myself, I quoted it in a couple of talks that I gave and a couple of, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, I've got to save it for the one point in a book where I, cause I can't quote it all the time, you know? So that, that, that's where it came. Very nice. I think that can wrap us up. And I just want to, you know, give another heartfelt thank you to both Todd and, and Ryan for coming on the show and being, I mean, you've both been immensely generous over the years on coming on the show. So uh, just a heartfelt thank you to, to both of you for joining us today. It's well, been an absolute pleasure. Us. Yeah, it's great. Really and, I, and I hope that this uh, whole insects within the jar situation was not <laughs> unpleasant, let's say. No, I, I feel pleasantly gnawed on. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and Todd, Ryan, if we, you know, in the future, in the next year or so, if we have you back, I really want to dig into your latest book on, on Hegel. Um, I've heard sure. nothing but good things. And it would be nice for us. You're talking to the wrong people, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> well, after we've, after we've, you know, because um, we're gonna we're gonna go into to some Deleuze and do some more anti Oedipus and stuff. But it would be nice to do some Hegel. And I, as I said, I haven't I haven't read it yet, but I've heard nothing but but high praise for your book. The title of which escapes you. Remind me what it's called. I think it's called Emancipation After Hegel. That's right. Achieving a contradictory revolution. Sometime. There you go. There you go. Yeah, one of the highest praises I heard was that it goes even further than than Marx in uh, in some of these revolutionary vin- vin- venues. So I know wow. that that might be. Don't want to make you blush there, but no, that was someone one that's hyperbole. I think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, you know, it's uh, that's part of the that's part of the fun. If you want to see, if you want to see another side of uh, another side of Bob Dylan, another side of Slash and Burn McGowan come out, you have us on. You can talk about that book, but also Todd's position on a lot of contemporary Marxists. So that's that. that be, yeah, he's nodding his head. Let's so. not do that. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you both. This is going to be Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins and the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off for the week. Of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, a pure violence without object This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is the murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I did is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange. <laughs>